Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 77, How Linwood Barclay Writes. Yes, I have a cold. Thank you, children. Okay, hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the How Writers Write podcast. This week's episode is with the best-selling author of more than 20 novels, Linwood Barclay. In this episode, Linwood and I discuss how his decades in the newspaper business has informed his fiction, his thoughts on plot and character, and just so much more. Linwood is generous and funny, and he was just a pleasure to interview. I want to say a special thank you to Linwood for his time and sharing so much with me. And now, my friends, without any delay, here's the episode with Linwood Barclay. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I'm your host, Brian, and today's very special guest is Linwood Barclay. Linwood is a New York Times bestselling author of over 20 novels. He spent three decades in newspapers. This is such a cool thing. I can't wait to dive into before turning his attention full time to writing thrillers. His books have been translated into more than two dozen languages, sold millions of copies, and he counts Stephen King among his fans. Many of his books have been optioned for film and TV. A series is being made, has been made, I'm sorry, in France, and he wrote the screenplay for the film based on his novel, Never Saw It Coming. Born in the United States, his parents moved to Canada just as he was turning four, and he's lived there ever since. Linwood, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Nice to ha- Thanks for having me. Yeah, so... um. We have to start with the Stephen King reference. Like, what, what, what is the background to that? Um, I, I got that off your official bio. So, uh, talk, talk me through that story. Well, very quickly, I, I was, it must have been about ten years ago that I had heard from my, um, who would then become actually my future editor, Harper Collins. She said that uh, she had heard from one of the authors that she worked with that, uh, that one of the authors that she worked with really liked my books, and that author's name was Joe Hill. And he'd uh, heard about the my books from his dad. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I know who Joe Hill is. And Joe Hill, of course, is Stephen's son. And then not long after that, Stephen, Steve was writing a piece for Entertainment Weekly back when he had a column um, in, the, in Entertainment Weekly. And he and out of the blue mentioned my novel, The Accident, is one of the best things he'd read that summer. So uh-huh. they're sort of followed after that, uh, you know, back and forth email. I've met him a couple of times. Uh, we're sort of mutual, mutual fans. I send him <laughs> an early copy. Sometimes he sends me an early copy. So he's been very supportive, but you know, he's not, not just with me. I mean, there's, he's very supportive of an awful lot of authors and tweets yeah. when he sees something he likes, he tweets about it. So, but he's certainly been there in my, in my corner, particularly with the latest book, which is find you first, which he has said is he believes the best thing I've ever done. And I, I think it'd be rude to argue with him on that. That's amazing. I mean, like you talk about who you want in your corner. You know, that's, that's a, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty good person to, to throw in your corner. So, um, I, I want to start out, uh, I, I love the background. I, I'm always so excited to interview writers who have, um, diverse backgrounds, right. Who have done a, you know, different job and then found their way into writing. So you worked uh, for three decades in the newspaper business. What, what kind of work were you doing for the newspaper? 
Well, it started, and the thing is, you know, I was actually writing novels in my teens and 20s. And, yeah. and well, I just out of the gate, I'll just be this best-selling novelist. <laughs> it didn't kind of work out because the books weren't, you know, nobody wanted to publish them and, and we can all be grateful for that. So at the age of 22, I thought, well, we're going to get paid money to write every day. So I applied for a reporting job at a small daily in, in Ontario, the Peterborough Examiner. And so I got a job as a reporter and I worked for them for a couple of years. And then I went to a, a suburban paper store outside of Toronto where I was there for another tw- couple of years. And in 1981, I got a chance to go to the Toronto Star, which is the largest circulation paper in Canada. And, but when I went in, they said, well, you know, we don't need reporters. We, we're desperate for copy editors. Do you have a lot of copy editing experience? And I said, sure. <laughs> yes, so, uh, of course I do. Of course I do. And, and, and so I was hired uh, to, as a copywriter. And luckily, I was good at it. And so I was very quickly, I was, um, I was working on the city desk as a, as a copy editor. And then I was assistant city editor. I was the chief copy editor. I was for several years, I was news editor. And I was you know, laying out all the pages of the news section, doing headlines, cut lines, and editing all that kind of stuff. And then I ran a department, the life section. And I did all those things for about 12 years. And then in 1993, there was an opportunity to do a column, um, allegedly a humor column. And so I I would say allegedly, because when you write satire in a newspaper, unless there's a big banner that says, this is satire, there will always be someone who takes it as gospel. But so there, there became this opportunity to, to do that. And so from 1993 until I took a buyout in early retirement in 2006 for 13, 14 years, I wrote three columns a week at the paper. So I did all sorts of things. I was, like I said, about half of my time at the paper was as an editor and the other half was as a columnist. And uh, so that was, you know, on the background in, in the newspaper bits. Yeah. That, okay. So were, were you also writing fiction during that time? No. Uh, well, I mean, it depends if you count the column. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, that's gonna, a lot of times people will say to me in an event and say, well, how did you make the transition from writing a column for a newspaper to writing novels where you make it all up? And I say, well, you didn't read the columns that closely, did you? But um, because as I say, I was, a lot of times my column was the equivalent of a, of a, it was like a 600 word political cartoon. So I was writing satire. I was making stuff up and, and to make a point. But I wasn't writing. So for the but the, for the last three years that I was a columnist, I was writing. I was starting to write novels again, and I wrote four comic thrillers that Bantam in the states published about a character named Zach Walker. So I was writing a book a year and still doing like 130 columns a year, and I was writing these comic thrillers which collectively sold, you know, like 90 copies. Um, and they weren't doing a whole lot. Uh, they weren't setting the world on fire, even though they're books I'm really proud of. And they're great. Um, and then I wrote a, a, I, my agent at that, around that time had said, you know, maybe you shouldn't write, you should start writing a series and you should not write funny and you should write a serious, quote, big book. And so I came up with this idea for something that became a book called No Time for Goodbye. And, you know, who knows why, but that book just went was crazy. Um, it was the number one, it was the biggest selling book in the UK for the whole year in 2008 wow. and sold millions of copies. And that was when I left the newspaper business yeah. and decided what? to write books full time. So you, you said you said you have no idea why that book. <laughs> 
But my sense is you you probably have some idea, right? You probably have some inkling or a hunch. And if as you look well, back and you think, what what was it? What you know, we- I think a lot of times, you know, where elephants go to die and why a book becomes a hit are things that we just never will know. Because, you know, how did how does a Gone Girl happen? How does Twilight happen? How do these, you know, and and not that doesn't say they're not good. They're really good books, but there are lots of good books, and and they didn't take off. So, what happens? And so I wrote this book called No Time for Goodbye, and a couple things helped. There was back then, and there still is, but uh, there was something called the Richard and Judy Book Club, which was uh, like a kind of like an Oprah thing because they had a TV show at the time. So every summer they would pick eight summer reads, and so this show on, in the UK picked one of them was No Time for Goodbye. So you think, okay, well that'll help, but for the, what we don't know is how is it that No Time for Goodbye became the biggest selling book just about ever for the Richard and Judy book club. It just went just nuts. And I, my, the best reason, I, I mean, I asked my own editor once, why do you think yeah. it would get? And he said, the best he could come up with was, he said, there's a tree on the cover. I guess people like trees. <laughs> you think, is it possible there was more than that? Right. You know? and, but I think, I think No Time for Goodbye, which was a story about a, a, a 14-year-old girl who wakes up one morning and her family's gone. The house is empty and 25 years go by and she's never known what happened to them. You know, were they all, somebody come and murder them all in the night and miss her or did they decide to leave and not take her with them? And which would be worse? Would it be worse to find that everybody in your family was dead or that they were all alive and didn't want you? So that was the premise. And we think that that touched a nerve with people. I think we all have this kind of primal instinctive fear of losing our loved ones, losing our family. And I think that book tapped into that. So mm-hmm. I think that may be why that was a hit. So interesting. So so as you look back, I mean, you had this long career in newspapers. You did, you're the Swiss army knife, you know, of new, newspaper guys, you know, could do anything. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and so as you look back, I'm sure there's so many things that you took with you into your fiction writing. But what yeah. do you think were the most important lessons or skills or strategies you took from your newspaper days into your your fiction writing? I think the biggest, single biggest thing is work ethic, is how I work. Um, For me, uh, writing is a job. You know, when you work at a daily newspaper, and you know, and we would publish the equivalent of a novel every day. It was a big, huge paper, lots of sections. When you work at a daily paper, you produce. And you can't call the editor and say, you know, the muse just didn't strike today. So I can't do a column. I'm not feeling it. I have columnist block. <laughs> and, and so that's not going to fly, you know, like that, if you decide to do that, that's, you're going to find yourself working at another paper or selling aluminum siding or something in a hurry. And, and so when I hear all this stuff about, you know, that's always a question in events, but about writer's block. And I always think it's kind of adorable that only writers have an actual ailment or condition to describe just not getting your work done. You know, like, is there a plumber's block? Is there accountant's block? Stuff like that. So what? So for me, writing's a job. It's not, it's not a romantic thing. It's not sort of filled with sort of, you know, it's airy-fairy, all this kind of stuff. It's a job. So I when I get up in the morning, I go to work. If I'm in the thick of writing a novel. And so I go to work and I'm usually at my desk by eight, between eight and nine. Today was earlier because I couldn't sleep at all. So anyway, um, so... I, I, my goal is to get 2,000 words done. 
some days it happens. Sometimes I get almost there. Some days I go by that. And that means that in a, in a week, that's 10,000 words. And in two and a half months or so, you've got yourself first draft. So it's just, it's a job. So that was the biggest thing mm -hmm. that I think I took from spending 30 years in newspapers. And, and the other is that I think that just working at a newspaper is a kind of crash course in the world. You know, especially when I started as a reporter, one day you're covering a trial, the next day you're covering a city council meeting, the next day you're covering a car accident, and you just soak up stuff. You're like a sponge. And so when it comes to writing, you think, well, you know, you don't really have to think about what does a mayor do or what happens in a courtroom or like you have this, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have to do research sometimes, but it just means that you've seen how the world works. And, and you've, you've soaked all that in. So you have this sort of, as the word repository of kind of information to draw from and experiences. Yeah. So that would be the two things. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. As you said that I, I was thinking, you know, like, boy, reporters really have access to such a wide variety of humanity. It, it's like, it's almost like you get to know people on a really broad level and yet dig into specific stories, you know, yeah. and, and have the benefit of seeing across, you know, for you decades of how people work and why they do the things they do. And, and, and all, it doesn't even yeah. have to be something that happened to you. Like when you work in a newsroom and I feel terrible for, you know, a lot of papers have, during the pandemic have just decided to dispense with the newsroom completely, even at post pandemic, they're just not going to have a newsrooms are just like this hive of activity. And it's, you pick up stuff by watching other people work and what they're doing. And, you know, I can, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting in, sitting in a room when somebody just sort of leaps up from their desk and says, you know, they've been phoning every port in the world trying to find this container ship where something terrible happened and they just found them in Madrid and they're running to the elevator to fly there. And you think, it's such a cool place to be. Yeah. And, and so you just see all the stuff and it just, it all just, it all just filters in, you know, and it all stays. Yeah. It's like narrative fodder, just like <laughs> raw, raw materials to turn into story. So let me ask you this. I, I, I've interviewed a fair amount of um, newspaper people who then went on to um, write fiction. And um, one of the things I've wanted to ask, but I've never done it, so I'm going to do it now, is, you know, you had said you had said one of the big things you learned was work ethic, where you never showed up to a newspaper a day and said, well, I just don't want to write. I'm just going to I'm just going to take today. I'll be here but I'm not going to write, you know, like, which is kind of, which is kind of the equivalent of writer's block. I'm going to show That's up right. and I'm not going to do anything. So what in your newspaper days, like what is it that you learned or what did you tell yourself? Because I'm sure there's days though, still, you still had days. I'm sure that you didn't really want to do the work. And so what was it you had to tell yourself to be like, Nope, not an option. You know, but the thing is, I don't think that's a problem that's specific to reporters or authors or anything. I mean, that's true of right. whether you're a teacher, whether you guy runs a podcast where you interview writers, whether, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. If you, if you know, if you're a carpenter, there are days where you just feel out of it and, and you just have to go into yourself no matter what it is that you do. and just think, can I just get through this day and do what I have to do? I, I think I have to accept the fact that this might not be my best work today. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to try my best to lay this carpeting and do what I've got to do here or whatever it is job, but it's not going to be my best, but you just have to kind of suck it up and, and do it. Or else you just say, I, I have a sick day. Yeah. Right. So, right. 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 I I can't I it's not that I don't feel like working. Right. I'm incapable because right. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm desperately ill. 
what I what I heard there, which is really interesting, is it's almost like taking a little bit of pressure off, you know, being like this may not be the best. Um, I'm not I'm not saying this is gonna you know win an award, but I'm still gonna do it even though it may not it may not be the best work I'm capable of. Does that is that is that hit true? Yeah, I think it's too. Like for for 14 years, I wrote three newspaper columns every week, and some were better than others. And you know, and sometimes you'd write when you think, man, that was just that was that was odious, that was bad. I mean, I, I mean, it was the best I could do today. But but what you had going for you is at least you had another one in two days. So if this one wasn't great, you can maybe I have a chance to redeem myself for the Friday column if the Wednesday one wasn't that great. Because I heard somebody once say that uh, somebody said, you know, I write one column a week. And the other guy said, I write three columns a week. And the guy who wrote one said, oh, I envy you because doing one a week, if I do a bad one, that stinker's out there for uh, seven whole days. But if you do a bad one, if you write three columns, it's only out there for two or three. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, that's, I think that's, apply- and a lot of that has an application for books because books really, like me, if you're on a book a year schedule, a year is a long time. Right. And even though it feels like, you know, if you're doing a book, you're cranking, you're working all the time. But, you know, if somebody picks up your book, your new book for this year and thinks, this is terrible. Next year comes along, they're probably, they're going to be a lot less likely to go out and get your latest. So there's a lot of pressure, I think, doing a book a year that it that you that you want it just to be the best damn book you can write. Because, you know, you only have to write one bad one and you're going to lose a whole lot of the followers. Oh, interesting. That's so interesting. I've never thought about it that way. Because to me, a book a year seems phenomenal, like an incredible pace, you know. Well, it's, uh, it can be, it's been on a treadmill a lot of times, but, and, then, and it can be tough on, you know, on the writer, but I'm thinking from the point of view of a reader, you know, right, reader looks, right, right. you know, you think, wow, this guy, he just really mailed it in this time. Yeah. And I think I'm done. Yeah. That's interesting. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit here. And, um, what are I, I want to play pretend let's let's say um somebody came to you and they said boy you've had this successful career and these beautiful books have been so well received you know big readership sold millions of copies um i want to kind of become a professional full-time working writer i, I want to write novels for a living and what what would you tell them is the most important things to keep in mind or to do or to practice? Like what would be your advice to somebody who said that or asked that? I should say. Well, I think, I think, <laughs> I think the first thing I'd say is good luck. Right. Um, because I, I feel very fortunate. I feel that in ways that I've kind of, I've won the lottery because not only, you know, am I getting, am I published, but I'm getting to do what I wanted to do. What I, I've been wanting to do since I was 15, you know, when I started reading Ross McDonald every year, you know, and I thought, wow, I want to be him. And, and so that'd be the first thing. And I guess the other is, is you can't, and it's hard, hard easy to say this, you can't be discouraged. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had to write, I had, it wasn't until book five for me that I had any kind of career at all. And so, and I had no guarantee that the fifth book was going to be that book. And so, you know, you just, you, you, you can't figure, well, I think it's time I'd like to be a best-selling writer. I think I'll sit down and do that. And la da that's going to happen. It's not likely to happen, but you never know. It's, it, it is kind of like playing the lottery, but it's a lot of, it's a lot more work than going down and buying a ticket. You know, it's, it's very grueling. It's very difficult. And you have to be prepared for disappointment 
and but and be able to accept rejection and you also have to be, be able to accept the fact that not everybody is right you know someone may read your book and think man this is terrible you don't have a hope next person might read it and think something completely different right, right. and so don't be defeated by one or two kind of negative responses the next someone else may like i mean i i can't think of an example now but we've all heard, heard stories of you know some astonishingly iconic novel that, yeah. uh, that some writer sent to like 30 publishers and had 30 rejections um so it's it's you know if that's your plan i think i would might perhaps just moderate those expectations and think first of all write your book yeah. Don't just think I want to write a book and be a bestseller. First of all, write it. Yeah. And then let's, you know, let's go from there. Yeah. I, I love this answer because I think oftentimes um, as writers, we get really focused on the things we can't control and, and put, put an overemphasis on the things that are, you know, we can influence and we can, we can hope for, but, but boy, we can't control them. And whether or not, you know, an agent reads your your manuscript in a slush pile and thinks I want to I want to rep this person, or an editor at a big publishing house decides they want to buy it, or the book sales explode. All of those things are are to a certain degree largely outside of your own control. Oh, there's right? totally. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was like when No Time for Goodbye was a huge hit in the UK and got picked by Richard and Judy. That was that was sort of a good book meeting a lucky break. Right. You know, in the in the week before, like that book was selling in that period when it came out as part of the book club, it was selling like 5,000 copies a day. Wow. In the, week, in the week before they announced that it was part of their book club, in all of the UK, in the previous week, it had sold 11 copies. So, oh. so you know, so there's- I, I was waiting for the 11,000, 1,100. <laughs> so I'm, what I'm saying is, there's, there's a lot of luck in everything. And, you know, you talk about things you can't control. I live in Toronto, right? As we speak, there's a lockdown. And I have a book that in this, you know, is coming out everywhere on May 4th in North America. Yeah. But it comes out on May 4th in Toronto and in Ontario. Well, bookstores are not, can't open because they're locked down in the latest sort of pandemic, you know, response till I think May 17 or something like that. So the only way people are going to get it is like curbside service or ordering online or something like that. Yeah. So there's a circumstance. What could be more out of my control than that? Yeah. Um, you know, thankfully, we're not in the same sort of situation everywhere. But right. there are a lot of things you just you just can't you just can't control. Yeah. So as as a writer, you have a book coming out May fourth. Um, as an author, uh, what what are, are are how are you adjusting to kind of this new world, this new publication world, this new world where um, you know, people aren't even, even as things relax, right? Like I, I remember doing interviews when like the lockdown was first starting and people who, you know, were having their debut novel be released in March of last year. And it was oh, just like, oh, it was sure. just like, what, what hope is there in the world? But now that we start to see as the world's kind of coming together, we're probably never going to be jammed together in this, you know, bookstore again. You know, how as a writer, are you adjusting to that new reality? Are you you know, doing publicity different, marketing different, writing differently. Sure. Like talking to you. I mean, yeah, right. Uh, yeah. A year and a half ago, I hadn't done any of these. I hadn't done any Zooms. None. I did one of these quaint things called a, a book tour. <laughs> now, one thing that's different is because we now have all gotten used to Zooming and so forth, we could just do, keep Zooming all through the year. Whereas when right. we did a book tour, it ended. You know, you'd go out for 10 days, you'd do something, you'd come back and it was over. 
But now it's like, well, let's do another Zoom next week. And so, and so and I'm not saying that's bad. I think that's, that's kind of a good thing. It's a great way to connect with people. But, but I think authors and readers are missing that sort of contact. I mean, yeah. Having somebody sign your book in person, you know, and having that experience is, and, you know, writing is a very isolating profession to begin with. Yeah. So only when a book comes out and there are events and there's tours and stuff that you actually, you start meeting people who actually read and held your book, but now you don't get that experience. I mean, just the way I, the way we work hasn't changed much because as I say, it's, we, you know, we, we all work from home and we all, it's very isolating kind of job to begin with, but those few chances we had to, to see people, that's, those are, we miss, I don't miss the airports. Right. I, can't that much. I don't miss sitting around and having my flight canceled. Right. That was no, there was no joy in that, but actually going to places and seeing people and doing an event with another writer and going out for dinner afterwards. Is that, I mean, that's, that's, wow. That just seems like another world now. Doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, we were talking the other day, just like, do you remember, you know, 10 years ago before there was COVID? Cause that's how long it feels, you know, it feels yeah. like, it feels like it's yeah. been a decade since, since this, this new kind of reality started, you know? I know, right? Says, well, this is all over. Where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Paris? Do you want to go here? I think, no, I want to go to my local diner and be abused by a surly waitress. Yeah, right, right. You know, I just want yeah. my omelet and home fries and a coffee and a newspaper. Right. And just let me just sit here, you know? Right, totally. I know. It's it's interesting the things now we realize we miss, you know, when they're taken away. You yeah. know, and Paris is great. I love Paris. As, as, you know, it's one of my favorite places, but just the idea of just going and sitting for a long period of time somewhere and having a cup of coffee like that, reading a book seems incredible. I mean, it seems incredible, you know? Yeah. And, and God knows we haven't have been able to get a legal haircut in Toronto since November 25th. Right. So. right, right, right. We all look a little uh, grizzly. <laughs> yeah. So um, as I said, before we start recording, we we're in the middle of running, um, you know, this big event. And what we do is we, we essentially say, Come to this event, and for five days, we're going to teach you the uh, building blocks and structure of plot. And you're going to learn it by plotting, by actually plotting your novel. And at the end of five days, we have, you know, essentially thousands of writers who do this, and they wind up with a plot for their novel. Now, it's not the end all; it's not everything they'll need, but it's a great starting point. You know what I mean? They can get started on their their novel using this system. And so, I'd love to talk to you about how you think about plot. Like, are you first off the bat? Are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Where do you fall on the on the endless, timeless continuum? Well, I'm sort of in the be- in between. But I, I I feel like you wouldn't start building a house without some blueprints, and, right. you, and you wouldn't start putting up walls unless you had a foundation. So I feel like before I start writing, I need I need to know the the big picture. Mm-hmm. So I always start with a what if. What if this happened? And that's kind of my opening. And then before I start writing, I have to think what set of circumstances came into play to make that what if happen. So when I start writing, I want to know who did what. I want to know who the bad guys are. I want to know, I want to know the mechanics of the plot and I want to know where I will end up. Okay. So that part I want to know. But what I don't know is what I call, you know, I know my beginning, I know my ending, but then there's this thing what I call the big mushy middle. Mm-hmm. What the hell am I going to put in that? Yeah, right, and right. I don't know what opportunities exist in that mushy middle until I start writing the book. I need to get into that before I can say, oh, I could do this, I could do this, that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to travel from here to here in this book. You know, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get in a car, I'm going to drive, I'm going to get in a car in New York and I'm going to drive to LA. 
So we know where we're going to start and where we're going to end up, but there are a hundred different ways to get there. Yeah. Right. And, and, but at some point I'm always going to return to that center line to get me where I'm going. So, so I'm kind of, so I'm sort of halfway between. I can't plot. I don't plan out the entire book before I start. I just can't. I don't know what's, I don't know what's cool stuff could happen uh, until I get into it. Yeah. I, I think I'll, I, I'm with you. I'm, I, I'm almost exactly the same. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, when I talk to writers and they're like, Hey, I'm struggling. I can't quite get my arms around this book. I always say like, know your beginning and know your end just, just as a forcing function to limit your options. Right. Because it, because, you know, if you're struggling to kind of get your story started, um, it's, it, it gets easier if you know where it's headed, right. Where, where it's going to end up. Right. It just, it just narrows it down the options. Yeah. My agent gave me a really good lesson. When I was writing my first thriller, the, one of the comic ones book called bad move, I gave it to her to read when I had two thirds of it done. And she's very, she's really good at advising on plot and so forth. So she said to me, having read the first two thirds, who did it? And I said, well, it's either, she said, stop. <laughs> she said, don't write another word in this book until you know how all the dominoes are going to fall to the end yeah. and figure out who it is. Don't give me this either, this person or that one, figure it out and then finish it. And that's what I did. And once I had it sort of mapped out, it just went like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot easier to finish. Yeah. Um, that, that, that makes absolute tons of sense. So as you're kind of putting your plot together, how are you organizing? I mean, I, do, do you keep it all in your brain? Are you putting it down on a piece of paper? Like tactically, how do you uh, get this thing set? Well, I, when I start writing, before I start writing a book, I start making notes in a notebook and I might have 10 pages of scribbles. What I And once I think I've sort of got it all figured out, I might even type up a couple of pages of notes, but I don't do an extensive, you know, a lot of writing of notes before I begin. Once I kind of know the big picture, it's up here. And then I just, I start writing. Uh, so I don't have an awful lot of notes to work off of once I get going. Sometimes uh, I, except maybe to write down characters' names so that George doesn't become Greg halfway through. Right, right, right. Yeah. And you, or you have to go back and be like, what did I name that guy? What's that guy's name? Yeah. And, right. and, and just and just so all the listeners out there, just, just, to, just to be clear, there, there's no right or wrong way to, to plot or not plot right. or to be a pantser or not pantser. Um, you know, if, if, if you hear kind of what we've talked about here and you're like, well, but I don't like to do that. That's totally fine. Like this is just ideas and options, perspectives, just kind of ways for you to find your way as the writer to how to get good words on the page. That's all that counts. As many writers I know, there's probably that many ways to plot. I mean, yeah. I did an event one night sitting with Lisa Gardner and Lisa said she doesn't know when she starts writing where it's going at all. Yeah. And, and Ian Rankin says the same. You know, he says they write the book to find out what happened. Yeah. That's charming. <laughs> That's great. I don't really write the book to know. I know what's going to happen for the most part. And I'm just getting it down. Yeah. And I mean, yes, there are surprises along the way, but I, I'd like to have that roadmap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed another author this week for the podcast. Same thing. She, she has no idea. She starts with almost nothing and she just starts writing and she produces these beautiful books. I mean, there's no one way to do this thing, right? No one way. So, um, okay. So I, you know, I, I just glanced at the time cause I was like, let's do a quick time check. Realized, holy smokes. Uh, <laughs> our time is like gone in an instant. It's crazy. So what I want to do is I want to actually um, kind of transition us and get us into our final five questions. So um, just for some background, I ask every single author 
on the show, the exact same five questions. And I love the answers. They're really, they make me happy. And also the reason I ask is just because I love showing the diversity of how people work, all the different answers to me, it just reinforces this idea that the writer, the individual has to find their one way to get words on the page. There's no one right way to do this. So in that spirit, I'm going to ask you these final five questions. The first question is this, what is the one word that best describes you? Well, it's hyphenated, task-oriented. Task-oriented. Mm, that's the first time I've ever gotten task-oriented. I love it. I love it. There's, hey, those, those newspaper days are coming out right there and, and task-oriented. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, second question. If you had to pick a spirit book, right? So this is a book that if you died and you were able to be reincarnated as a book, this is the book you would pick to be reincarnated as. Uh, what would it be? You know, I, when, you, when I saw that question, I, had, I just got nothing. But I thought, I know what I'll say. I'll say the Toronto Star style book because (laughs) all the years in newspapers, not only was it the book that I had to reference all the time for our proper style and everything, but one of the editions I was tasked with updating. So it was my job to upstate the style book. So there could be my, there's my legacy is the Toronto Star, working on the Toronto Star style book. All of my. All my spirit has been beaten to death and is in that book. Oh my, I promise you, you're the first one to say that. (laughs) Okay, question number three. Is there a specific tool? Can be anything at all, pencil, software, chair, coffee, tea, anything that you absolutely must have to write? I think it's gotta be a chair because if my my back's killing me, I hate, nothing's gonna work. Right. So let's say chair. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that one. I'm a chair snob. My, my Herman Miller, whatever yeah. this thing, you know, it works for me. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pen snob. Like I got to have my pens and I'm a chair snob. I got to be sitting in my chair. Yeah, I'm with you. Anyways, okay, question number four. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? I suppose alcohol is probably... <laughs> is, I think that might be the, the first, even though I'm not really as skilled with that as I'd like. I think that, you know, the thing is, it really, you just have to roll with it because successes mean really nothing without those failures. And so when you have those, but, and in writing is very up and down and uh, you're, you're on the top of the list one day and you drop to the bottom of the next. So it's, uh, you have to take, you got to take the long view, you know, yeah. how am I, how are we doing over the long view? It's a powerful perspective. It really is. Like success has more meaning in relation to the the struggle and the failure you had to go through to get there. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Here we are. If you could give one piece of advice to new writers out there, what would it be? Read. Just read. Read lots. You know. Somebody said one time, right? This might even been Stephen King said, somebody said to him, well, they really want to be a writer, but they don't have much time to read. That's like somebody saying, well, I want to be a chef, but I don't like eating. (laughs) And uh, I think that one of the best things that a writer can do is to read read a lot of different things. And you can learn as much from that as anything. I love it. I love it. Well, this has been such a pleasure to interview you. Thank you so much. Oh, Lulu just woke up. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I, I so deeply appreciate it. It's so fun to talk to you and uh, get a sense of your journey and your spirit. It's been really enjoyable for me. So thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks thank for having you. me. Thank you again to Linwood for his time. 
you haven't yet, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. Also, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I tend to post all over the place. Lastly, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.